Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more, plank the second to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. Today I am chatting with the author Chris Farnell. Uh, Chris is an old friend. Um, he is also uh, the writer of multiple books. Uh, his first was published uh, quite a few years ago now, uh, um, Mark Two, about a uh, boy who is uh, his 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 best friend is is, is cloned, um, and the uh, his latest uh, quartet of novellas is a science fiction series called Fermi's Progress. Um, we talk a little bit about science fiction and fantasy and where ideas come from and our interest in cryptids and ghosts and UFOs growing up and how that leads into ideas around scepticism and how we make truth claims. We talk about how you turn ideas into stories, following characters, giving characters something to want, something to need, something to do. Um, the challenges of writing uh, novellas. Uh, Chris uh, has uh, published this series through the uh, indie publisher Scarlet Ferret. Um, it's also available on um, Amazon as well. But, um, we, you know, we talk a little bit about uh, you know, releasing uh, something as a series of novellas and the opportunities and challenges of writing in the novella format. Um, and just get to talk about some of our favourite authors as well. Chris mentions Arthur C. Clarke and Terry Pratchett. Uh, and it was, just, it was just really nice to talk about, like... I don't want to say, like, literature of ideas is, is often... Bit, is sometimes a way of... Uh, talking about lit it means literary fiction where the characters just have long conversations where they talk talk an essay and and also like sometimes when we talk about uh, people say lit lit literature of ideas and really it's science fiction and it evinces a little bit of embarrassment as if science fiction and having fun is a little bit a little bit lowbrow you know it's a little bit not quite what we ought to be doing with our one precious life on this you know we shouldn't shouldn't still be exciting the idea of bigfoots or creatures that live underground in the hollows of the earth or aliens or space travel or all these things that you know i'm just going to go ahead and say and i think chris echoes this as well it's kind of like whatever other things they might do in sort of helping us rediscover the world or you know explore what it means to be human offer incredible metaphors expand our thinking and our imaginations fundamentally that all may be true and legitimate but they're also just fun and cool and you get to play with them and it's enjoyable you know, I don't think we need to be so puritanical as to say, well, you know, what a terrible thing. When you read these books, you, 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 you'll enjoy it. You'll find yourself having a good time. Surely this can't be the only thing that they offer. Well, no, not necessarily. But 
that may be a central pleasure and that's okay so um yeah i hope you'll enjoy uh hearing us chat if you'd like to check out uh one or indeed all of chris's fermi's progress series um you can go to scarletferret.com you can also search for the book the first one in fermi's progress it's called dyson's fear so it's like dyson's fear but it's a they're all kind of like quite nice puns the titles dyson's fear decarmageddon um planet of the apiaries uh and the last one is the phone job which is kind of a pun it's you if you read it it'll make sense but um anyway uh you know you can go on to either scarletferret.com or amazon and pick up at least the first one and check it out see if you like it uh i will put links to those in the show notes and you can follow chris um, at the brain of chris on twitter and if you enjoy the show and you'd like to support it and by extension me tim clare your pal tim uh then you can go onto my coffee page that's ko-fi.com forward slash tim clare thank you to everyone who's been supporting the show it's uh it's really it surprises me every time uh i you know because i every time one pops up and i go oh oh coffee donation and i it's just i'm always surprised because you don't get anything um from supporting the show except that the show continues to exist uh but you know there's not like a super backer rewards or anything like that just my genuine uh gratitude and yet people still choose to and that's just really cool so if you're able to do that i sure do appreciate it got some great ideas for shows coming up got some uh, more interviews coming up there's this episode i've been wanting to record for a long time that i just want to get right i don't want to it's on a subject to do with to do with non-fiction actually kind of coming on from one of the previous ones that i recorded um but i just want to get get my ideas in order because it's a, it sort of needs a bit more than a, a writing ramble as much as i enjoy my off the dome uh the prognostications on the future of writing my completely spontaneous thoughts as much as i like standing up here in the coward's castle in the bully pulpit and telling you what's what as as much as i enjoy uh monologuing on uh issues of gravity and deep emotional significance to me i think it's something that i need to marshal my thoughts a little bit more and not in uh kind of like with a with the naive superficiality and discursiveness that normally characterizes my uh free flowing disquisitions on subjects literary and emotional so i'm i'm going to um uh, do a little bit of writing on that and I, I just i've got loads of writing on this week as well i'm working on the pitch and first chapter for my new book and I'm hoping super soon uh, to share some pre-order links. There is a pre-order link for my new book up on Waterstones, but I'm going to wait a little while before I share it. Um, but some people told me they've been pre-ordering, they're pre-ordering my next book already, which is... Yeah, you 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 scrumptious people. No, that's going to make you feel uncomfortable if I start saying that. That's uh, patronising and slightly creepy. Anyway, I I'm I'm seeing this uh, introduction is now uh, circling the drain. 
So I shall cut it short and say, I hope you're having a lovely day. And I hope you enjoy listening to this uh, very uh, chilled out, uh, nerdy and uh, honest and enthusiastic and passionate conversation um, between two, I think, Chris won't mind my uh, characterising us thus, uh, avowed and proud nerds. Um, here's my chat with Chris Farnell. So the first thing I want to ask, and it's the first thing I ask every single time, and I haven't yet, having asked it like, I think a good 80 times now, I haven't thought of a good way of phrasing this. But basically, the, the central question that I'm always sort of circling around is when was the first time you can remember telling a story? Um, I'm, I'm not sure. Or I, I guess the other thing is like the first it... time you really got the sense that stories were like important that stories were a thing the first thing that mm. time that you like went oh like oh like story stories are like different to like like this storytelling thing this like making stuff up is or like language is oh like it has power or it's like oh there's a kind of magic to this i think one thing that i think definitely set me on the path was um when I was a kid in primary school, uh, used to be into all sorts of books on cryptids, mythology, the unexplained, that sort of thing. And two things that just sort of collided at the same time were a big book of mythical monsters and a old issue of the unexplained that talked about a theory that dreams were like glimpses of parallel dimensions. And so being what uh, seven or eight, uh, me and some friends took the very logical next step that given what you thought about before you went to sleep changed what you dream, if you all agreed to think about the same thing before you went to sleep, you could meet up in a dream. So, of course, being seven or eight, we created this great big high fantasy, lots of monsters setting and, you know, basically came up with MMORPGs. But <laughs> but directly inside a dream. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, and, you know, then obviously we would all go home and go to bed and the next day, We'd all come in and talk about what had happened in the dream the night before, and we would all be sharing details and remembering, you know, what happened. And, you know, without actually agreeing to it at all, just it very quickly becoming this big collaborative storytelling. Yeah, and, and it didn't end in some kind of horrific david cronenberg-esque nightmare where you were all sort of uh, uh, where one person didn't turn up at school the day before the next day and then it was like did you did you see them in the dream last do you remember the the dreams <laughs> is someone is someone imagining things that we didn't agree upon is one of us <laughs> <laughs> well at one point one of the 
kids was told they weren't allowed to play with me anymore because I was giving them <laughs> nightmares. So, you know, I think that's a good early response. You, I, to I it, remember most. reading lots of sort of mysteries of the unexplained and, and and UFO books. What do you think? This may be a maybe a very obvious question, but what do you think it was that drew you to those books that was making you read? Because I remember reading those books voraciously and sometimes exclusively at one point, and I, I'm I'm just. I remember, I remember them being like in school, <laughs> like there being a lot of them available. A lot of like, now I look back, a lot of like conspiracy based kind of like the government is lying to you, <laughs> the earth is hollow, books just like Usborne books of the unexplained. <laughs> like, what? What do you? That's so weird, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, no, it was like just before the X Files really blew up and there was a massive appetite for that but i think it's something that you know as a you know grown-up author and someone who studied literature you're sort of not really supposed to think this but i think it's something that is still remains is it's the idea it could really happen and i think there's this there's a straight line between being like four and learning that dinosaurs were things that were real and existed to reading books that appear equally authoritative telling you that ufos are a thing that exists to writing stories as an adult where you spend ages looking at spreadsheets to work out how the gravity would work and things you're supposed to you know except it's all an artificial construct but i think there's still a bit of you that is still trying to you know make it it could all really happen i mean it's yeah i i don't know i don't know why i i wonder whether i don't know whether kids are still into i don't know whether kids are still into that or whether it is because i remember having lots of lots of books in school on like ghosts and not like ghost stories but like like supposed like photos and uh those there were these big sort mm. of like black and silver embossed kind of books that had stuff about uh astral travel and ufos and ghosts and psychic powers and esp and things like that and it, it seemed very maybe it was like a leading up to the millennium there was a kind of like millennial sort of angst that you know all these prophecies were going to have i don't know but I just find it interesting that um, I used to think that skeptics were kind of the baddies because you'd read these books and it'd go like skeptics say that perhaps it was a a, a man covered in <laughs> pondweed, uh, and and you go and you go oh those blimmin' skeptics, it's obviously yeah. a swamp monster, and 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 there's some point in your life where the skeptics <laughs> start to seem more reasonable. <laughs> And I wonder, I wonder what that transition was like for you of like one day, well, not one day, but presumably it didn't happen. How how was the transition from you from kind of like this place of kind of like slight scared wonder? Do you think you always kind of like in your heart of hearts felt knew that it wasn't, was unlikely to be totally true? Or do you think, I wonder how that kind of as you grew up, by the way, if you believe in all of it, that's fine as well. I'm not... I don't know, it's not something I remember happening as a sort of, you know, epiphany or even 
really it's a you know process so if it, there's just you know a period in my life where you know obviously ufos were real and then at some point later that's probably silly so i'm not entirely sure how it happened or what changed i think partly it came down to the sorts of things i was interested in which you know were very sci-fi orientated and science orientated meant that scientific method and observations were things that sorry and observations and evidence were things that i thought you know were important and led to good things like spaceships and learning about dinosaurs and relativity and to i think to get to that cool stuff you had to sort of accept that that's probably just a guy in a very furry suit in the <laughs> photograph. Do, do you do you remember some of the uh, authors and kind of media that kind of started bridging that gap for you? I suppose when you're kind of like when you're transitioning into like when you're reading now like f- like fiction and that's giving you the same kind of like sense of wonder but is like very clearly a story can you um some of those early mm. authors uh, that you were reading and going oh this is this is this is great this is a good this is good i mean i think i think my picks probably wouldn't you know surprise anyone i think arthur c clark was you know uh, if that hits you at a certain age it's mind-blowing just in terms of scale and just in terms of helping you start to get your head around just how big the universe is. And again, there was that same sense of this is all real science. This is all how this would work, how far away this planet is. And so you start to build up a picture of a world where these things are possible as opposed to ones where you just have to pretend these things are possible. And even, I think, Pratchett, I think, is a writer that teaches scepticism in a very healthy way. Can you give, can you give, some, can you give some examples Into... of how Terry Pratchett does that? Um, I think the Bromeliad book, books, um, the sort of Truckers, Diggers, Wings trilogy. Uh, I think that is one of the best sort of toolboxes for a child in terms of assembling what a belief is, how it works, what it's for, what you get out of it. And it's not done in a very, in a way that is, it's definitely coming from the perspective of a non-believer but it doesn't feel like it's there just to point and laugh it's taking it apart and showing you how it works you look at a shopping store this is how if this was the only thing that you knew in the universe you might make up a story about how it works and obviously you make up that story to be about you to place you at the center of it and there just happen to be these other much bigger people that come in and out of it, which are largely irrelevant. 
Yeah, I I I don't know about you, but like I I I think that kind of thing is why is maybe one reason I've I've always been drawn to stories where there's some kind of implied uh there's like not post apocalyptic exactly, but when there's been some civilization before that's kind of fallen or something like that where the people who are living now are kind of making stuff up about it or things like um Ridley Walker where we know the background to the you know it's in a putative our future but they've only got scraps of our past and they've made up a bunch of in some way in some cases you know like semi-mythic or like godlike beliefs about stuff that we know the truth of but we can understand how they got there no absolutely just yeah that sense of seeing of stories where you see how the myth is put together yeah and seeing i think yeah seeing stories as tools they're not exact documents of what happened even when they're true stories they're things that have been made to serve a purpose i think also i feel like pratchett and clark although they're sort of very different tonally I feel like I'm not going to say Pratchett is an optimist exactly, but he I, d- I don't get in his work. His work has heart, right? Like it's not it's skeptical, but it's not cynical. Mm. Like there are good there are good people yeah. in it and there are things worth defending and fighting for. It's not like Pratchett doesn't write like grim dark where everyone is either a sucker or on the make. He 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 writes worlds where there's oppression and where there's inequities, but where there's a purpose to trying to change those things. Is that fair? Is that fair enough to, to you? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, this is possibly verging onto a tangent a bit, but I think that's a big difference in, I'd go the whole way to, you know, go into actually talking about belief in the big B sense. I think it's the difference between sceptics and atheists as written by sceptics and atheists versus as written by believers of whatever kind is. If a sceptical atheist character is written by a believer, they always seem to be angry they're always, you know, either angry at God directly or angry at the universe in general or angry that there isn't Santa Claus or whatever you want to make it. Like like Arnie's character in, um, uh, I think it was, was it, was it, well, uh, there was, it, I can't remember the name of the You're not thinking, you're trying to say Sixth Day, but that's the clone one. It's End of Day. Yeah, that's why I stopped. End of days, yeah. Where his his explanation of why he's an a- atheist is, God and I had a disagreement. I thought my wife and child should live. He didn't. Exactly, and I think it comes back to what we were talking about the unexplained magazines with the the evil skeptics, and they're saying that Loch Ness monsters three half tires in a puddle. It's just that <laughs> sense that not believing is some sort of act of aggression, which isn't something that you find at all in Pratchett or Clark. 
And do, what do you think, I, just while we're, we're on this tangent, and then I want to come back to your writing in a second, but I, I just, because I think it's, you probably might have, might have some sort of fruitful reflection on this, because the whole new atheist movement, maybe there were parts of it that did slightly fall into that stereo type do you do you do you know what i mean whereas and i don't think that people like for example uh ricky gervais um talking about being an atheist at every opportunity he has and, and kind of kind of crowing about how stupid anyone who with any kind of belief must be is not really how i see a a, a non-belief as being skepticism rather as being presented in sort of like maybe the kind of Pratchett model yeah is that fair enough or what What do you think about that because that seems like a distinction that you're drawing like there's angry we have had we did have a period in the early noughties of like lots of quite kind of like high-handed people like Dawkins who like ended up sort of going down some pretty dark roads yeah. do you know what I mean and 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 that doesn't seem to be quite the same thing. yeah I think and it's I tend to be cautious around sort of atheism's just becoming another religion type arguments. But I think there's a point where you get, you do get scepticism as an identity versus scepticism as a practice. And I think that's where you start to get your Dawkins and your, you know, just Ricky types who seem to you know end up down these really bizarre rabbit holes of conspiracy theories and ideas about wokedom and just a complete inability to assess new ideas that is surely the point of skepticism in the first place i guess what you're sort of you're identifying it as a kind of a kind of epistemological humility like at its center it's like i'm a human and a lot of the ways that i that my my senses like intuitively interpret the world and my emotions filter those things are wonky and that's okay but it means i've always got to be careful not to jump to include con- conclusions without running through this little checklist um rather than just going everyone's stupid except me exactly it out. um so can you think about what what was the process by which you what uh, so you started off doing these kind of like collaborative storytelling and of course when children when we play games in the playground we're always some you know to a certain extent larping but um what what can you remember like how it went from there with your own writing yeah. Uh, what 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 did you? What were the kind of stories that you ended up uh, writing, like through your teens and things like that? Were you writing then? Well, I think it it's uh, you know alarmingly straight line to be honest. I think the first things were I did start writing down the stuff that you know we were playing in school as part of that whole thing, and I think that still exists somewhere, frighteningly. But then, yeah, within a couple of years of that there was my first sort of vaguely novella-ish length story which was a fairly typical Lord of the Rings 
rip off in every possible sense. And yeah, from there, I just kept doing it over and over again. Um, yeah, I think I learned and refined and kept coming at it at different ways. But I think from about 12, when I wrote that first sort of very obviously Lord of the Rings story, it's basically been that same process with extra steps ever since. And can you, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to, because of course, like I, we first uh, met at university and you were doing a kind of real mixture of some fiction and you, you know, you did some performance poetry at some stages, I remember. Um, so you're kind of like running the, the, the full gamut of things. Um, your first book was was Mark Two, correct? Yeah. That was. Can you can you talk a little bit about um that as your first, I guess, work of novel length fiction that was kind of released yeah. to the world? I, yeah, that I, I again it came out of that thing of I came across like in a documentary this idea of parents looking to clone terminally ill children and it just seemed like a you know it was a new but real technology that had a use that was extremely you know tied into people's feelings and relationships and I think probably looking back fairly blithely and with no idea of the level of what I was actually taking on thought well this is a story that you know could be good to tell and it was the I think the most low-key story I'd ever written everything before that had very much had spaceships or goblins or zombies in and this was the first thing I'd written where the only real sci-fi element was the relationship between this school kid and the clone of his dead best friend and that drove the story forward you say it's like kind of like the most low key thing you've written. I, I wonder, like, how do you? I I, I wonder, like, I'm I'm not sure. I wasn't sure whether I was getting like an emotional valence from that. Are you Are you saying that's like a is that like a, a value neutral thing or a good thing or a sort of bad thing in terms of like? Do you feel that's like where you're at as a writer, or was it nice to have that restriction, or did it feel in some way constraining? I just wonder. Um, it's value neutral, but I think generally I'm a writer who likes to get out the toy box and have, you know, if you're going to make things up, then you might as well really make things up. So there, it did feel like a restriction having this world where it was, you know, entirely resembled our world and things that would happen to people, you know, in an everyday environment. You know, looking at it 
you wouldn't know if there was anything science fictional going on in the story. But I think it taught me a lot about how sci-fi works when you take the toys away and what it's for. And I think a lot of what I did writing that story was learning about writing a perspective that doesn't really a perspective outside of your own and a perspective that sees things that you take for granted from a fresh angle and i think that's something that keeps coming back in sci-fi i think yeah i and and it's just i I guess it's like i think do they call it like cognitive estrangement is like well that's what i'm reaching for but that thing where yeah you're able to I, you know, I suppose it's normally when we talk about exoticization, we normally mean it negatively. But I think sometimes it can just be like, I sometimes think you, it can also have a positive air if you're like describing a house from the perspective of an ant. Like then, of course, like the the, the dinner table is going to seem exotic because it's going to have jungles of food and you're going to see it from a new perspective and it's going to seem like amazing and we're going to re imagine what a piece of slice of bread looks like where it's got all these holes and divots in it and and so i think there can be a positive side to that where it's making you see like you say the world through new eyes yeah and it's kind of refreshing it to you no absolutely and i think that's the thing that i keep coming back to is that question of what do you look like to someone who doesn't know what everything in the picture is for. Dude, I, I, I suppose the reason I brought it up was because, I, well, just to kind of like, I, it, I, I now realise the reason I brought it up was because of a sort of stored up feeling of resentment that I have for when I went through university, being told by various writers who didn't write science fiction or fantasy, um being sort of informed very bluntly that well at the time i guess like the kind of whole darko suvin uh approach to science fiction was a bit in vogue in academic circles where what you if you're writing science fiction or fantasy the proper approach is you have the novum you have the one different thing that's different and that is the idea of the story and the entire story is exploring the implications of that that one piece of technology or that one magical twist or that one existence of a monster but you're saying that you like for you as a writer you particularly enjoy when you can have lots of things that are different not just one where you can have all sorts of different changes that are happening and i wondered if you could just talk about that a bit more why is it why do you prefer i'm not asking you to make a sort of objective defense of it as better but why do you think you most enjoy and you prefer writing in a world where you can change you know whatever you want oh it's weird you should say that because um i used to believe that for a really really long time i think at a formative age I read this essay by H.G. Wells talking about his stories and he laid that exact explanation down that the game was to have one impossible thing and to have everything else 
come logically and realistically out of the consequences of that thing. And to a certain extent, I think that's still something that I adhere to when there's a new element in the story, there's usually a reason for it. But I think with, you know, we're starting to get onto Fermi's progress now, but I like being able to just, to do it quickly, to just pick the idea up, turn it over, see what noise it makes, and then throw it to one side and pick up another one. And it's a very liberating thing to allow yourself to do, to just be able to use it like a toy box, just pick things up, find the cool thing, use it. And it's it's play, basically. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is, I, I think I've had this, now you're saying that, I think I had this similar experience to you, that I felt that there were very clear rules. And, and, and maybe it is a good training to go through a kind of this astringency, this kind of like period of austerity where you um, limit your, your what's available to you. So you practice going, okay, so I'm not just going to show somebody being able to time travel and then continue the story without showing the implications of time travel existing. Like you can't be careful that you're not introducing stuff that doesn't completely destroy the reality or the economy of your world because otherwise readers if they're the kind of readers that you want to cultivate engaged interested readers who ask what if are going to get annoyed because they'll go unless it's very broad parody they'll be like well if they've got time travel powers why how how is there any consequence to this bit or whatever but as you say like there's something also realizing that that is a norm or a sort of rule of thumb rather than a law that's going to see kind of like the science fiction police rat rappelling through your your roof and arrest arresting you and taking you away in kind of like zip ties um then you can just kind of like have characters walk past so and just have a little bit of what initially is kind of atmospheric color and you may later rely on it as evidence you may later go oh yeah we saw that kind of uh, alien who has no bones in its head and can squash its head down to completely flat. I can use that to solve a prob- sorry, yeah. likely problem later on, you know? But also, I, I'm not sure it really works in 2021. We've got a massive computer network that lets anyone share any thought they have to thousands of people instantly. At the same time as we have a global pandemic, at the same time as we have billionaires doing their own little space race, the science fictional elements are all piling up simultaneously. At the same time, there isn't that that whole idea of there is one strange thing that happens doesn't work in real world. That's a really good point. Yeah, it's like, you can't have a billionaire space race. We're doing a pandemic. (laughs) It's like, have you read um, Day of the Triffids? Yes. What's surprising to me about that is it's not really... It's not really about the Triffids. Like, they're largely sidelined. There's like a a bioweapon has gone off that... I assumed since it's set up in the story that Triffids can send people blind with their stings, you kind of assume that when there's people going around blind, 
they've been blinded by triffids but no it's completely it's it's entirely unrelated it's yeah. not even tangentially related to the triffids and it's just such a but it's just like yeah but sometimes like bad stuff happens and you just had a bunch of triffids that you were kind of relying on nothing bad happening but it's it's just really interesting to me that like there's a bunch of stories that where the people just went no it was just kind of just what happened what happens if i think um maybe it was uh, uh who wrote neuromancer again oh uh, william gibson yeah william gibson referred to it as the jackpot apocalypse <laughs> where like multiple apocalypses happen simultaneously because they sort of all trigger each other or you're just unlucky yeah no like the even the stuff with like cars and xboxes not being able to get the raw materials they need at the moment that has been it's yeah hg wells would probably like that because it is partly a natural reaction to the supply chain issues caused by the pandemic but also it's this completely different thing that is coming at us from a totally different angle and it's just yeah everything crowds into each other there's not one thing you can say this is the story that's yeah that's and, and of course that's the sort of more realistic thing that like life doesn't just sort of form an orderly queue um but but i but we but i do feel like i grew up in an orthodoxy where it was like you know if you're going to do proper science fiction mm. you pick you pick one you pick one thing and it would be silly to have like zombies and the return of the greek pantheon like those yeah. two that's you're being muddled don't do that can we talk a bit talk a bit about um can we sort of like transition into um uh Fermi's paradox now which I feel like um I, I I feel like there's no there's no austerity of ideas in and it's a seri it's a series where you've maybe you can give the sort of elevator pitch but I just feel like it's a nice transition now because it is something where you've explicitly created something where you don't have to yeah, you don't have to be stingy on ideas and what ideas you put in. Yeah, I um the uh, basic premise of Fermi's Progress is that there is this old prototype faster than light ship that has been cobbled together from old Cold War tech, and it gets taken for a test flight, and it turns out that it's faster than light engine unleashes a massive shockwave that just completely vaporizes and destroys every planet in its wake and they can't turn it off or destroy it without making worse things happen so they just are going from planet to planet and each planet they will you know have things they need to do they'll need to pick up supplies and things but end of the story that planet's dead now and i think in terms of what we were talking about part of it was a way to pick up and then dispose of ideas quickly because if you look back at 
sort of old sci-fi shows like you know star trek's the uh, example they would have an episode they would have a planet that planet would be an idea you know a planet where they um sorry just blanking on all star trek episodes you know a gangster planet a roman empire yeah i was gonna say planet of funny hats i think is the classic description of it yeah and then at the end of the episode that planet is completely forgotten about and never mentioned again and i feel like i felt like a lot of the space opera stories that were being written at the time I started Fermi took place in very crowded universes where you couldn't really do that. And so Fermi's progress was a way of just sort of giving myself an etch sketch where I could draw out the idea and then when I was done with it, slide the thing across and I've got a clean sheet ready for the next idea to play. But, but what I want to ask, Chris, and, and, and it may just be because this is the premise of the story or there may be a sort of rationale behind it, like... If they if <laughs> if they just moved on to the next planet, if they just you know you could just have them warp jumping to somewhere right, and it's far away and it's isolated, and they they're at a new planet. Why is why why do they need why does the why does it need to be like obliterated? Is it just your sort of defense against fanfic? Are you just like going? No, all these characters are dead. You can't write about them. They're dead. They're, they're their planet's gone. No, it's it's gone. Well, <laughs> I think the other side of it is a lot of these stories. What your astronauts do is they will arrive on the planet and they will find everything's being run by an evil computer or women, and they will come down and overthrow it all and install Western democracy and save the world and then fly on to the next planet and there were never any bad consequences so i wanted to create a setup where if my characters encountered something bad they wouldn't have any sort of obligation to fix the planet or you know they wouldn't have any long prime directive conversations but also you know, wanted to make it clear that they're not helping these planets. Their effect on the universe is not a good one. <laughs> so everyone has to die. <laughs> can can was there? Can you remember the process by which you, um, when you first had the sort of kernel of the idea for this? I yeah, there's a couple. Um, I mean, one is going back again to those old magazines is coming across the idea of, uh, do you know Freeman Dyson's Orion propulsion system? Uh, No, but if you uh, whistle it, I'll try and play a lot. No, um, I don't know. This is was a really detailed project. Like all the maths was done. It was ready to go bar some politics getting in the way at a relatively late stage. But the plan was a rocket filled with nuclear bombs and it basically threw a nuclear bomb out the back, exploded it, and the nuclear explosion would push the ship along. 
and this would get the ship up to massively you know really powerful speeds and it would get around all of the sort of weight concerns you have with conventional rocketry for the small price that you're completely irradiating everything behind you so that idea that you had a spaceship that just completely wrecked everything behind it was already a seed and then again we're coming back to this idea of you know what could really happen as a thing that you can even do but i also read about the alcubia drive which is you know the proper scientists word for warp drive and a theory that because of the way warp drive works the bubble of warped space that would push your spaceship along would pick up all of the particles in the way as it went through space and then when it arrived at the alien planet it would just unleash a particle cannon and just completely obliterate whatever was in front of it which you know would have made for a less interesting story so i had to sort of switch that around but that idea of a ship that did just destroy whatever it left behind was already kind of germinating and then i was just i had been in a sort of a bit of a lull in terms of writing and i just got to the point where you know you just want to ignore your veg and eat a massive bowl of ice cream and for me the massive bowl of ice cream was just coming up with high concept alien planet ideas and then you know throwing them away when you're done with it and so that just connected to these two old actual science ideas to create the fermi i mean i have i have to say thank goodness that it's such a ridiculous and far-fetched idea that um there'd be some kind of transport system that would render a planet unlivable uh that's uh only 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 in uh, only in science fiction uh uh say can you talk a bit about writing because i've never written uh a novella and i suppose um to some people it might and maybe the and i don't know maybe this is the answer um it's just like oh it's just like a little novel like literally there's no there's nothing more than that do you think there's uh what what have you learned about um writing novellas from doing so and is there anything different in the skill set or in your aims or how you plot it what's uh what what are the challenges and opportunities there um i mean, i think i'm not sure it's i mean, i think i can only talk about these novellas but i think the weird thing is you know i think of mark 2 as a novel and it is shorter than some of the installments of Fermi's progress, which I still think was novellas. And I think part of it is with Fermi's progress, it's a very action orientated plot. It's very, each scene leads into the next one. There's not many sort of large periods of people 
sitting around and dealing with their feelings about what has happened. I expect between the stories that I've written, there's probably a lot of all the characters sitting on the spaceship feeling sad about things. But the actual stories are very much focused on this story is about this planet and what happens when you go here. The characters have to want something and each scene has to be about how they get closer to that and what's getting in the way of them getting that. And it's quite a refreshing way to write because there really isn't a sense, even without tightly plotting it, and they've been plotted to various degrees between them. Even without tightly plotting it, you usually know what the next thing to happen is because you know where your characters are and what they have to do to get what they want. But but isn't that true of a... Isn't that true of a not? Is that not true of a novel? Like, I mean, is that distinct to novellas? Or... I don't know. It's distinct to me writing novellas. I think with the longer things that I've written, there tends to be a lot more time to sit with an idea and explore the idea, and you know, have a, have your characters have a long think about ideas in a way that isn't true with the Fermi stories. The Fermi stories have lots of ideas in, that's, you know, why I wrote them, to just sort of bombard the story with as many different ideas as I can cram in. But the ideas always have to be there to do something. They always have to have an effect on what's happening right now. Do do you... uh, I'm going to go sort of into can I ask a process question now I realize that sometimes this is a little bit of a uh, <laughs> some writers hate this because they sort of feel slightly exposed <laughs> like there should be some sort of amazing answer they've got like I get up at 6 a.m and which I mean you probably do but not to write <laughs> and then do work for x amount of time and and do this but I just wonder if you had any particular process for 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 writing this whether you sort of because I know a lot of people including myself and especially recently I've been really I suppose I am asking for a friend i.e me about like how you actually make yourself write, like because like obviously it's stuff you care about Mm. right and you don't want to get it wrong because it's kind of cool and you've got these exciting ideas in your head and yet it's often when one starts writing less easy well it's always less easy to write than it is to imagine a story in your head and not do anything yeah i'm just wondering how you breach that kind of like motivational gap stroke kind of having to come face to face with the fact that writing is hard um i mean it's the thing is i'm sort of at the beginning of a new project now and i'm sort of looking back at Fermi's progress and wondering how I did it because I started writing it in 2015 and in that time there's been among other things a bereavement two house moves a Brexit um, a pregnancy it's been an eventful few years during which time I've also had to you know do freelance work and stuff to pay the bills and you know see my family from time to time 
Um, so I don't know. I think it's mostly just snatching time where you can. I would love to have a sort of really neatly laid out routine, but I think a lot of it has just been just finding those gaps of time where there isn't something else that you need to be doing and just trying to cram in what you can into that. Uh, and do you think that, how do you, how, so maybe, how do you deal with, but and also how do you deal with the fact that now I'm asking, and maybe this isn't something that everyone struggles with, but like getting past that fact that when you sort of write stuff down, mm. at least at first, it doesn't always come out how you want it to. Sometimes you start writing stuff down and you kind of realise that an idea that you had, like some logical problem with it, it becomes apparent as you write it down. How do you keep going in the face of kind of like inevitable setbacks? Because given the fact that you have to kind of like squirt out these tiny little, these, these kind of like little gaps of time when you can write. Um, and then that writing isn't very easy. Like how you know it seems like you've got extra challenges to do that and i wonder how you when it would be just so easy to like play video games or patience or something how are you how how are you make getting yourself mm. how are you motivating yourself to that I, I play video games plenty of times when i should be writing so but I, that's that's reassuring <laughs> to hear but um i think not having much time means that when you do get some time to write, you can't really worry about you know, whether you're going to get it right first time. You have to just trust future you to draft it properly. And I think part of that is, you know, like I was saying, Fermi's progress is something where there's really not much doubt about what the next thing you have to write is. So you do have that freedom to just get things down and move on to the next thing. And it is, I have tried hard to structure it in such a way so that I'm never really writing the, and then the characters have to do this to next to the, to get to the next good bit scene. I try to make sure there's something that I'm excited to write about in each bit of the story. So, yeah, it sounds like, I mean, in my experience, when it's the scenes that have been easiest to write for me have always been when one character, preferably a viewpoint character, has a clear want or motivation in the scene. Like, they're there, they're... they're their motivation is very very clear to me like what they need to be moving towards or getting done or achieving with a conversation those are the scenes that always entirely coincidentally tend to feel easier to write yeah no i absolutely agree it's acting is always a bit easier to do than reacting i think You've got to have some. If there's something that they want to do, then you. Uh, I don't. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm losing my thread a bit there. Yeah. Was you so, so? But you. But I. I suppose you said like that. You felt like with characters 
when you're writing it, it like there's there's always some there's always a motor when they you know when they arrive when they encounter this new planet there's always some kind of motor they, they don't just like turn up <laughs> they don't just turn up and there's no they're like oh there there we are well um well there there it is like there's there's something for them to want or react to or something that's driving them forward exactly and that was very different from for example mark 2 which is very much this thing has happened how do you feel about it and a lot of the book is just the main characters reacting to the situation that they're in while with Fermi's progress you're always running out of food or fuel or, or there's something that you want to steal there's always something that gives the character something to do in whatever scene they're in if I, I'm gonna I wonder if you've got any this uh, I I the reason I'm pausing is because I know I'm I'm dancing around the question like where do you get your ideas but that's not the question I'm going to ask mm. but I'm just for people who who are listening who want to kind of like come up with how do you know an idea is good that's what I want to go is like when someone's dancing around like they got an they got like a premise for science fiction or fantasy or whatever that they want to write how do you how do you know that an idea has got legs or how do you take an idea from being one that's just been because often you've talked about ideas that you read something or encountered something in a magazine and it kind of knocks about in your head until it knocks against something else how do you convert something from a an idea like oh they've just invented these gravity boots to a sort of like a, an actual story where there's you know where you can actually write it down you can't just describe some gravity boots right like mm. there's got to be something happening how do you how, how do you know an idea is good and how do you turn it into a an actual actionable story well the pithy answer is come up with fermi's progress because <laughs> a lot of the ideas that are in fermi's progress are ones that have been just sitting in the ideas bucket for years and years which were cool ideas that I wanted to play with, but they weren't ideas that had any particular characters attached to them or, you know, any particular story that could drive them. And so having the Fermi meant that, you know, I had these people that I could just throw into any idea and have them have to deal with it. And if they get through it alive, that's your story there. So... Like the second instalment, uh, Day Carmageddon, is about a philosophical zombie apocalypse, which was an idea that I'd had for ages, but which I just didn't know, you know, how you could make that a story. But suddenly, you could just have a planet where that's happening and have your characters need to try and get supplies there and boom it all just starts can, happening can you can you for 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 for, for listeners who uh, are sort of less uh, au fait than uh, i i mean i'm going to sorry i'm going to i was about, about to be incredibly charmless and go 
I, I don't know why I did say who don't. I don't know why I didn't phrase that as who don't know what that uh, philosophical zombie is. I don't know why. I then I changed that to who are less au fait with philosophy than me and you. So like <laughs> making us this kind of like very very unsympathetic privileged group of like well yeah I know I've I know I got a first <laughs> in philosophy. Um, but um, can you just uh, can you can you uh, just explain what uh, a philosophical zombie is. I, yeah, without going into giving away the plot too much, the idea of a philosophical zombie is the idea that you can have a thing that looks like a person and will react like a person in every single possible way, but which doesn't have a qualia or that's the you know philosophy word but there's not a thing that it is to be like that person so you know there's nothing that it is to be like a rock there's no sentience there's nothing looking out of it so it's the idea that could you have a person that was completely fully automated without it knowing that it existed and that is a philosophical zombie there's no way to identify it there's no way to tell it from anyone else for all you know everyone might be a philosophical zombie except you and that is the idea that they carmageddon is sort of playing with so, yeah okay so it, it it's kind of it, it it's a it's something that is all behavior and no experience yes <laughs> yeah that, that's a quicker way of saying it yeah yeah, I, uh, but you, yeah but it doesn't that doesn't make any sense unless you've had the longer explanation <laughs> beforehand yeah no t- t- cool um I, I was wondering if um I, I was wondering if to sort of like finish off if uh I don't mean to say, like, do you have any tips, but I, I, I wonder if you could may, maybe uh, and a sort of easier way to say it is like, uh, are there any particularly successful like moves that you've seen other um, authors do that? I know that I sort of like regularly identify something cool that I see an, an author doing in their work that I think I, I'm going to nick that, not like the line, not the character but the sort of the technique mm. um that's a cool trick how you've introduced this character or the way you've phrased that or the move you did to end the scene and i wonder if there's there's any authors that you read that you were like oh that's a really cool thing that you did in this story i want to do a story that does a similar thing or something like that yeah. that we might be able to use as well yeah i think i particularly with sort of writing alien planets i think one person who is very good for stealing from is uh adrian tchaikovsky and i think uh ken mcleod is very good at this as well which is just when you're writing aliens your aliens are going to be human there's no way of getting around that if you ask a human to come up with a character it is going to be a human that wants human things. So what both of those writers do, and something that I have st- 
stolen is that ability to see how much can you change how much can you swap out and still leave the human in there so one thing in um children of ruin i think a great example is tchaikovsky has sentient octopuses and one the rule he changes is does your consciousness have to be one thing octopuses have a central brain and then basically each of their arms is a separate brain how does that change how you think and how you perceive things and i think being able to ask questions like that when you're trying to create something that isn't human is it's a good trick yeah yeah that's a yeah i'm just thinking of like how how the sort of like the the forever war sort of has a kind of premise that is really about two species who think in completely different ways uh and the, the, their inability to be able to have that kind of conversation being the sort of trigger for the entire conflict and how uh, you know change has to happen for them to be able to basically understand each other on a fundamental level and I, yeah it is it, 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 it i think you know we can of course have aliens that are nothing to do with humans but then they're just Things. they're just you know we can have they're just dead then they're just like pets or creatures like like what aliens that are characters for them to be you know even with zombies right yeah like either the zombies retain some vestige of consciousness in which case they're a stand-in for the humans or they just become the equivalent of a flood a natural disaster and you have to have other humans as antagonists yeah who are the real baddies because you know the zombies don't really want anything except to except brains an embassy town which is one of Red since doing Fermi does an excellent version of it because they have alien. Have you read Embassy Town? No, it's China Meeville. Right? Yeah, it's got aliens who speak language with a capital L. And the thing about language is you just say the thing. You don't have a sound and then an understanding that this sound represents this thing when you say something the thing you're saying is the thing there's no concept of lying there's no concept of making things up everything that is said is exactly the same thing as the thing it's talking about which is hard to explain because it is very very different from how humans work and what we think of as language but from that, he is able to go into so many different other ideas and find so many different perspectives of looking at things. I think that's you know, a fairly simple and easy to understand change. But, well, we're, we're back at H.G. Wells and the, the changing one thing and what follows from it, aren't we? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and of course, like, if you... The thing, and I suppose the, and I suppose to do a kind of like uh, late game vault fast and uh, come back to kind of like a defensive H. G. Wells's position is that of course you can't ever ch- just change one thing because if you do change that one thing and follow it honestly, 
then the ripple effects are so ginormous that of course there's going to be all these other different of course like if your cha one change is uh you know functional and practical and accessible ftl or whatever um then th there's going to be all sorts of other implications for civilization and we might meet other sentient beings that who then have their own technologies and their own cultures that they've developed and so actually even though you have only got one change like all these other technologies have to exist beneath beneath that pyramid for it to sit on yeah and then we might have contact with all other worlds and access to all sorts of other things so yeah you've just made one change but the implications of that allow you to grandfather in absolutely everything else while still technically sticking to the letter of the um premise yeah exactly and also like hg wells is like you can only what a, i mean what a what a cheek what a, is like only i'm only going to change one thing and that's that time travel is possible and i you go to the future and i said it's a giant it's a giant crab <laughs> That's it. That's evolution, by the way. It is giant crabs. I mean, history's proved him right on that one. So. I I know he's been super vindicated when the moon collapsed and the the crabs came crawling out the sea. He's <laughs> it was like eerily, eerily. It's like those. It's like those Simpsons, and as predicted in the Simpsons, giant crabs episode now doesn't seem quite so funny. Uh, uh, if people want to find. Well, I was going to say find you online, but that sounds sinister. What I um, um, most mean is um, your books and then secondarily you online. Where's the best place for them to go? Oh, well, they're all on Amazon, but the best place to go is probably Scarlet Ferret, which is an indie uh, ebook store that. Yeah, obviously you're not giving money to Jeff Bezos, and also it gives the author a high percentage of the royalties. So it's ethical on so many ways, and I get more money. So that's a great place to go. And if people want to, uh, uh, you have a Twitter. You you're on Twitter, right? Yes, I'm at the brain of Chris. Cool. I'll put links to um, both those things in the show notes of today's episode. Thanks very much for coming on and chatting to me, Chris. Thank you. And to everyone else listening, I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.